Welcome to Fintech at Kellogg, a podcast where we'll shed light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that are transforming the financial service landscape as we know it. I'm your host, John Cambers, and today we sit down with Professor Sarit Markovich, who's the Associate Chair of the Strategy Department at the Kellogg School of Management and who teaches a class in innovation in financial service markets. Professor Markovich joins us to discuss her journey to Kellogg, her interest in fintech, and how innovation is reshaping the lending space outside of the U.S. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Professor Markovich. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. And I'd like to start off with a very simple question. How did you end up at Kellogg? So thanks. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Kellogg is a great school. It is my uh, research interest that actually brought me at first to Kellogg. And my research is in modeling dynamic economic situations. And there are leaders in this uh, field here at Kellogg. And that's what brought me initially to Kellogg. In terms of my background, my background is in computer science and economics. And I think that that uh, where actually fintech really fits very, very well with my interest, with my expertise. I'm originally from Israel, where entrepreneurship is really very popular. And I think that fintech is a very nice combination of uh, economics, technology, entrepreneurship. So that all these together brought me to start studying this and then uh, thinking about maybe also teaching a course on this topic. And it's interesting that your background is in computer science and engineering, but you're teaching in the strategy department. So why not go teach um, in economics or why not teach in computer science? Why specifically did you want to focus on strategy? So I think that the first thing uh, to know is that Kellogg is very uh, unique in the strategy department and the way that, or the people that we have in the strategy department, which are all economists. So the nice thing about being in a business school rather than in an econ department is that it allows you to really combine market knowledge and theory and talking with practitioners and uh, thinking about combining lots of fields together rather than just focusing on uh, empirical strategy or um, on theory. So this is uh, just uh, a great place for you to really combine knowledge from many different fields. And for those who are maybe unfamiliar with your class, could you just provide a brief high-level description? So the class is uh, really on fintech where we're using economic frameworks that uh, students learned in the core strategy class that we offer here at Kellogg, uh, as well as some new frameworks that are all based on economics. And we just uh, think about different uh, fields in the in fintech. So we're thinking about mobile payment, and we're thinking about peer-to-peer lending, and equity-based crowdfunding, and obviously Bitcoin and blockchain. And we're trying to understand the strategy behind it, meaning why was there a gap for new entrants to come and offer something new, something different? And how should they position themselves in the market? And how should they compete with the banks? And how should the banks respond to this entry? And what kind of partnerships we should expect to see? And whether we expect the evolution of fintechs in the U.S. market to be different than in different markets, like in Mexico. 
So it's not just what is fintech, but it's why is fintech important? Why does it matter? Exactly. And also about sustainability. So really thinking about where do we see this going and how do you want to compete in a market like that? So I think it's a combination of entrepreneurship and strategy and competing against those large, trusted, dominated banks in some markets and against large, not maybe trusted banks in other markets, but at least they are large. So how do you as a small company compete with those very large competitors in the market? Interesting. So this is a a perfect segue for us to dive into our subtopic for today, which is innovation in the peer-to-peer lending space in particular. Can you describe the evolution in online and peer-to-peer lending and how it has lowered the barrier for many to access credit? So um, yeah, peer-to-peer lending is really a fascinating topic. And we see that it's been developing differently in different markets. If we think about peer-to-peer lending, the It all started with the idea of being able to really just connect small borrowers with small investors. So allowing people like you and me to go and borrow money from people like you and me and allowing uh, uh, borrowers to actually, you know, access this type of investment opportunity. Uh, I think that in terms of uh, financial inclusion, uh, first, the fact that you don't have to be banked uh, really opened up this opportunity for many people who do not have bank bank accounts. And um, I think that people will be very surprised to know that about 8-9% of the U.S. population is unbanked and a larger part of it is underbanked. So the opportunity, even in the U.S. market, is large. And then when you go to third world countries, the opportunity is even larger. So I think that in terms of access to these loans, we are going to be able to see that um, more people are going to have access to these loans, either because of the fact that they don't have enough money to actually have a bank account, or because of the fact that banks are actually physically far away from them. So they do not have access to or getting to a, a branch is going to be very costly and hard for them. So that's really interesting. So how specifically does this process create value for lenders and how does it create value for borrowers? So for uh, borrowers, as we said, first, it is going to give access to um, loans to those who don't have access to such loans. And they don't have access to such loans, um, as we said, sometimes because they don't have a bank account, um, sometimes because they don't have any kind of credit history. And those peer-to-peer lending platforms are willing to rely on different type of data to actually assess your risk. So even if you do not have credit history, this is going to allow you to take a loan that otherwise you would not be able to get from a bank. So that's definitely a way to create value. Additionally, um, the interest rates that they offer are typically going to be lower than the alternatives that you have. So if you can take a loan from the bank, the bank is going to charge you a higher rate. Or if you are going to go to pay their loans, they are going to charge you a higher rate. So you're getting a better deal in terms of the interest rate that you're that you're paying. And do you know what the typical difference would be between a bank interest rate and an online lender interest rate? Or does it vary drastically from borrower to borrower? 
I'm assuming it varies drastically. I don't know exactly. I have more data on on the Mexican market. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about, so those are the borrowers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the lenders, right? How does it create value for lenders? So for the lenders, initially, again, when we're thinking about peer-to-peer, then the idea was to have those small lenders, small investors, retail investors that do not have access to these type of investment vehicles and allow them to invest in this type of investment. So that's going to diversify your portfolio and that's going to open this opportunity for you as an investor. And on top of it, even if you had access to maybe some something that a similar investment, your returns here are going to be higher and your returns here are going to be higher because again of the fees. So what the peer-to-peer lending platforms are doing is that they're taking the spread that banks take for themselves and they are squeezing it, taking only 1% from the borrower, 1% from the lender and giving the rest to the borrower and the investors. So your expected returns are supposed to be higher. So theoretically, that makes sense. But does this actually live up to the promise, right? Is this one of those situations where it's just easier said than done? So yeah, that is a very good question. And um, there are a couple of things going on. The first thing to remember is um, the risk. So when we are thinking about peer-to-peer lenders, it is the case that the risk is on the investor. If you are an investor on this platform, then you are going to bear all the risk of default. So if the borrower does not pay, you're going to be the one who's going to suffer from that. The platforms typically are going to help you try and get some of this back. But again, all the risk of default is on you. So um, that means that you have to make sure that you're diversified and the platforms are doing a good job in terms of educating the investors that they have to diversify themselves. But again, we're talking about typically not very sophisticated uh, lenders. So many times they're just not going to do a very good job in this respect. So in terms of risk, you have to understand that this is probably going to be more risky than many of the other um, investment opportunities that you have. The other thing is that raising capital from retail investors is very hard in terms of getting to scale. So these platforms found that it is very hard for them to actually fund all of the loans that they, uh, all of the requests that they have for loans. And um, this is why nowadays uh, people don't even talk about peer-to-peer lending. They talk more about marketplace lending. And the idea of marketplace lending is that we also have the institutional investors that come in and bring tons of capital with them. And that allows these platforms to scale and offer additional loans. So that's actually a great segue into the next question, which is, uh, what are some ways that these peer-to-peer lenders try to differentiate themselves? Is it who is who they're allowing to borrow, who they are allowing to lend? Is it the ability to scale that you just mentioned? So yeah, so um, differentiation is definitely hard. And just w- if you think about the first mover, the first mover into the U.S. market was Prosper, and they're definitely not the leader nowadays. So Lending Club... Um, is the is the leader and it just tells you that it's not about uh first leader it's or the first mover sorry it's really about how you're thinking about going going about this market and designing your product um 
If you think about differentiation, then I think that a very interesting example is Zopa, which were, they are actually really the first entrant into this market and they offer their product only for retail investors. So they do not let institutional investors into this, uh, into their platform. Uh, so that's one way to differentiate yourself. Um, the other way to differentiate yourself is to think about who are the borrowers. We see that the different platforms are actually still trying to figure that out in terms of the risks they're, they're willing to take. So many of them started with a higher FICO and then went to a lower FICO score and then went back to a higher FICO score. So they're still trying to figure this out. But if you're thinking about where the advantage can come from, then scale can probably give you an advantage. And scale can give you an advantage specifically when you think about these platforms because they really rely in the risk assessment on the data that they have. So if I've been in the market for a long time and I have more data, then I am probably going to be able to do a better job in terms of refining my algorithm, in terms of pricing the risk correctly. So is there anything else that they're doing in terms of the underwriting process in particular? So, uh, you know, you mentioned looking at the FICO score, you mentioned using an algorithm. Anything else that these companies are doing to try to, to capture that advantage? So they claim to do a lot and they do definitely collect a lot of data. It is the case that if you, if you go back probably about two years ago, their risk assessment was actually still mostly uh, built on the FICO score, but now they're trying to go um, and build their algorithm uh, on other type of data that they have. So one example that one of the platform shared with me is in terms of how long people actually use the slider. So when you're going online to ask for a loan, then there is a slider that you can use that's going to help you figure out um, how much you'll have to pay and what will be your interest rate given the amount that you're borrowing. So if you are going to use the slider or um, play with it for longer, they think or they, they take it as if you are thinking more about what you can and what you cannot afford. And they actually found that it is correlated with lower risk of uh, default. So that's going to be one type of data that they're looking uh, at. Um, when you're thinking about fraud, they're looking at how fast you're typing. So if you're typing too fast, then that means that it's probably fraud because probably it's something that is automated. But then if you're typing too slow, then that means that you're not very tech savvy and that means that it might be harder for you to return your loan. Um, they're also looking at uh, your social network and trying to get some information from there. I am not sure what type of information they're able to get there. And they do think about their algorithm as their secret sauce. So they're not sharing a lot of information in terms of what exactly they're using, what they're not using, and what have been found to be correlated with uh, default. That's incredible. So they're really looking at everything that you do. Um, that's just amazing that they're they're watching how or they're tracking how long you use the slider or how fast you're typing. 
Absolutely. No, it, it's true that um, they are trying to follow whatever you're doing and then checking correlations. That's what they do. Checking correlations to see is can is it correlated with the risk of default or not? And then can I actually use that as a predictor or not? So in your, in your class, you teach a case on Koweski, an online lender in Mexico. First, can you talk a little bit about the lending space in Mexico in general and why so many Mexican middle-class millennials have such limited access to credit? So the Mexican market is really fascinating because on one hand, it is you, have, you see all of the big modern banks in Mexico. And on the other hand, you just have a large market that is unbanked. And um, some of it is because of the distribution of branches again, so just access to banks. Some of it is because they just do not have a lot of money. And um, when we're thinking about access to credit, then they also have a problem where you don't have a central authority that's going to assess your credit. Um, and that means that you don't have the FICO score. You don't have anyone that can tell you anything about your credit history. So obviously that means that these loans immediately become more risky. And that means that first there are going to be a smaller number of firms that are going to be willing to give you a loan. And if they're willing to give you a loan, they're going to charge you just these enormous interest rates. Do you have any idea what's led to that erosion of trust over time or, or why that infrastructure doesn't exist yet in Mexico? So in terms of erosion of trust, it, is, it has to do more with the central bank and the government and corruption overall. Um, there is um, a large informal uh, market in Mexico and a lot of it is because they're trying to just avoid paying taxes. And that's because, you know, they don't trust the government. They don't trust what the government is going to do with these taxes. And that means that I'm going to keep my money at home rather than keep it in the bank because they are concerned that banks are going to report on their uh, on their income to the IRS or the um, equivalent in Mexico. So for those who may not know, what, how would you define an informal market or an informal economy? So... Informal economy is a market where transactions are not reported to the government. So if they wanted to access credit before before Kueski came into existence, where would they go? So they they would go to shark loans, which are kind of like the payday loans or pawn shops. The rates there, again, are just enormous. I believe that we're talking about something like 70% interest rate for a 30-day loan. That's incredible. And 20% interest rate for a 15-day loan. I mean, th those numbers are just mind-boggling to think, you know, for, for many, particularly those who grew up in the U.S. that may have always had access to basic financial services, you know, a 20% interest rate, a 70% interest loan for, say, 30 days um, it's just, it's incredible to think that, that that is typical outside of the U.S. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, these are the people who don't have bank accounts because they don't have enough money. So obviously paying those uh, interest rates is going to be just very, very hard for these people. So, okay. So what specific steps did Kweski take to get a better gauge on the credit worthiness of potential borrowers? 
you know, did they go through some of the steps that you mentioned before, or did they try to take a different different spin on this entire area? So no, they, they're trying to do something that is very very similar to what we see other platforms doing here in the in the U.S. They're also trying to think about their um, geographic location, and that's going to tell them a lot about demographics. When we're thinking about the credit history, Questkey, in fact, for thinking about um, really building a product or building a company that is going to offer this service to the banks, and they might still choose to do that specifically now that they have more data and um, their algorithms might allow them to be able to offer these services to the to the banks. But uh, overall, yes, they are looking at um, very similar behavior. So it, it gets back to how fast people are typing, how fast they're using or how much they're using that slider key, et cetera. And what email accounts they have. Is it a Yahoo email account or a Hotmail email account or Gmail? Because if it's a Gmail, that uh, tells us again something about how savvy you are. And um, also they correlate that with your age. So digital reputation starts to play into this as well. Um, and then are, are they using the social, you, you were talking before about social behavior, social uh, social platform behavior. Are they using that as well? They are definitely also using that. Again, I had many long discussions with our CEO. I do know some of the uh, usage, but I'm not allowed to share it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So now, is this is this typical outside of the U.S.? Right. So you know, is what we talked about Mexican little uh, Mexican middle class millennials and what they're facing. Would you say that that's more common in other countries than not, or is the access to financial services that we have here in the U.S. is that more common? If you go to Europe, you're going to see that the European market is closer to the U.S. market, but not everywhere. And even if you think about Italy, for example, they do not have anything that is similar to the FICO score, for example. So I know that there are Italian banks that are trying to partner with some of these platforms in order to be able to build this type of credit history. And that, and then if you think about Africa, if you think about India, then this is going to be similar to the Mexican market. And I think that what's really interesting there is that, and now I'm completely ruining my quest case, uh, case discussion in class. What's interesting there is that when you think about these companies, now differentiation, now competitive advantage is completely different, meaning that if you're a first mover or if you are able to attract a customer, he, she are probably going to stay loyal with you because they can really build a credit history with you. And then you can offer them better interest rates as time goes on. And you're offering these small loans, so that means that they're going to keep coming back to these small loans and you're going to be able to really create relationships that you're not going to see in the U.S. because the market in the U.S., because credit histories are more more popular, then that means that you're switching costs across the different platforms um, are much smaller than when you think about the Mexican market or the Indian market and so on. That's really interesting. So there's an entire game component to this that a lot of these firms need to consider. Absolutely. And, and that means that, again, if we're thinking about fintechs and the 
and the progress of fintechs in the different markets that tells us that it is really about these market fundamentals. How do these markets actually work before fintech entered them? And that's going to affect the sustainability of these fintechs. So do you see or how else do you see the lending space evolving in the future? I think that, um, again, differently in different markets. I think that in the, in the U.S., we are definitely going to move more to this marketplace lending um, rather than the peer-to-peer. So I do not see any entrant like Zopa in the U.S., for example, meaning that any entrant that is just focusing on retail investors. And that means that scale is going to become more and more important. I do believe that they are going to rely more on data, and it will be interesting to see what type of correlations they are going to be able to find. And I think that if we're thinking outside of the U.S., I think that we're going to see more companies that are trying to build these relationships with relationship with a, with their borrowers and offering them additional services in a way maybe just start becoming a bank for them for, for these uh, for these customers um, where in the US we do see that some of these platforms are trying to become banks so they're really trying to have a banking charter and to accept deposits but I assume that that's going to be much harder for them to do in the U.S. just because of the alternatives that customers have. I actually have a good banking alternative in the U.S., which I probably do not have in Africa, for example. So that that was uh, it's incredibly interesting to hear about your insights into this. Do you have any sense as interest rates potentially go up over the next few years, how this is going to affect the lending space in general and um, you know how this is going to affect particularly the institutional investing into the space in the U.S.? So this is definitely the billion-dollar question, and many uh, really wonder about that. There are def- different views. I believe that uh, as interest rates go up, it is the case that institutionals are going to have better investment opportunities. But I think that they are still going to stay with these platforms because I think that these platforms will just have to increase their prices. So what we're going to see is that these platforms are going to increase the prices in order to make sure that they can offer these returns to the institutional investors. I think that because you are invested in this market for three years, five years, it is not very easy to just take this, take your money and move it somewhere else. It's true that you can choose not to invest in future loans, but I believe that because scale is so important for these platforms, that they're just going to have the borrowers bear the cost of these higher interest rates. Interesting. So thank you so much for taking time today to share some insights on the lending space. What advice do you have for anyone, maybe it's a a current student at Kellogg or a future student at Kellogg, or maybe someone who isn't even attending Kellogg uh, and they're just listening to this and they're interested in getting into the fintech space. Any particular advice that you have for them as they, they think about that? So first, I believe that anyone interested in financial markets should be interested in fintech because fintech is going to affect how banks work. It's going to affect how investment banks work. I'm not saying that fintechs are going to overtake banks, but I do believe that we're going to see banks responding to fintechs, whether they're trying to 
develop it on their own or they're going to start uh, partnering with fintech. So understanding what's happening in this field is going to be something that is really important for you when you're going into financial markets. If you want to learn more about uh, fintech, I think that first you have to not be concerned if you do not have any kind of technological background. So you don't have to come from computer science. It is the case that you want to really think about those market fundamentals. So I would say think more about economics, think more about strategy, and then um, just uh, obviously read a lot about what's happening in this market. I think that following what's happening in this market is hard when you're thinking about fintech in general, because there are just so many changes in um, in payments and insurance and um, banking and uh, Again, Bitcoin, blockchain. So it's hard to follow everything. I do think that CB Insight is one a nice source that is going to give you a nice ov- overview of what's happening in general. But if you can choose first, what is the vertical you're interested in? And then start joining all the uh, different forums and blogs and so on that talk about all these uh, changes that are happening there. That was probably a good idea. Again, thank you for taking time uh, to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Professor Markovich. If you'd like to know more about fintech at Kellogg, you could reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check out our Facebook page. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.